This is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I am Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And today we're talking about a couple of roguelikes that we have played recently, Void Bastards and Noida. Uh, Josh and I each decided to pick a game, uh, a roguelike that the other has not played and we thought was interesting, and uh, uh, make a little roguelike roundup of the, uh, the games that we picked for the other to play. These are both pretty recent games, and both of them have been pretty critically acclaimed as well. Uh, Noida being a finalist for the grand prize at the Independent Games Festival last year, and Void Bastards being a finalist for the Excellence in Visual Design Award this year at the same festival. Excellent. Yeah, so we're going to uh, tackle these one after the other. We'll sort of go all the way through our discussion of Noida and then uh, Void Bastards and probably compare the and contrast the two of them along the way. Um, so first things first, uh, we're going to go into Noida, yeah? Ah, for sure. So Noida is developed by NOLA Games. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced NOLA, uh, but it's a Finnish independent game studio. The developers include the maker of Cran Physics Deluxe, one of the... Air, um, one of the early indie games from the 2000s, and also a more recent critical darling, Baba Is You. Yeah, that's right. Uh, RV uh, Taikari, apologies for the name pronunciation, but uh, had created Baba Is You, and that is a fantastic game. And I even recognize the third gentleman of the, the trio's name, uh, Ali Harjola from The Swapper. The Swapper I actually played as well, and that is a fantastic uh, sort of puzzle platforming metroidvania game and uh, really this this to me is sort of like your indie developer super team if I've ever seen one I never even knew these guys were all Finnish until today <laughs> yeah it turns out Finland has a burgeoning indie scene or at least has three extremely talented uh, indie developers on its hands because you know I uh, I recognize all these titles and I recognize them all to be uh, games of quality I'll have to try a swapper. I've never tried that one before. Uh, have you tried Baba's You? Yeah, I've I've actually gotten through that. I appreciate the design and the ideas, um, but didn't really get too far into the game. And it's this puzzle game thing for me. When I see a puzzle, I have to beat it. But each world <laughs> in Baba is You has like your standard puzzle progression, and then it has the extra challenge levels. So... I had to go through and beat all the extra challenge levels before I go through the regular game because my brain's wired like that, and I wasn't able to get past a few of the extra challenge ones. That's where I've been blocked on that game so far. Yeah, that was too hard of a game for, for me, to be perfectly honest, but I, I loved the idea. Anyway, uh, before we get too far derailed, um, in Noida, uh, just to give a sort of a high-level idea of what this game is, you are a witch that can create and cast spells. And basically, uh, the real gimmick here is it's sort of a uh, procedurally generated world where every pixel is physically simulated. That's definitely the tagline of the game and a very interesting thing about it. There's a kind of physics engine to the game, uh, not something like here's gravity, here's collisions, but rather here is, um, you know what it reminds me a lot of? is the chemistry engine from Breath of the Wild, uh, how you have fire interacting with water or um, things like that, where you are able to set up different situations based on how these elements would interact with each other. 
So I actually would characterize it in the following way. Uh, to me, this is like a deck builder roguelike was thrown in a blender with the internet falling sand game and sold that. Oh, the falling sand game. Yes, that was fantastic. Yeah, so it, it has like basically all the same elements in that internet falling sand game. You know, if you catch a gunpowder uh, piece of sand uh, on fire or you hit it with fire in one way or another, it will um, immediately ignite and blow up. And just like Soldat uh, comes into the picture here where you're moving or the way you're moving around. It is a, you know, side look, you know, ant, ant farm view uh, of the world where you are platforming and you have your mouse in a reticle that can go in a full 360 angle around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a classic game, Soldat. I haven't played that for a few years, but it's an apt comparison. Uh, same kind of side scrolling, same jetpack sort of. Uh, moving around with the jumps and whatnot. Uh, good way to get around there. Yeah, the interesting thing is here, um, you also have your wand, which is your main way of interacting with the world, and actually you can carry multiple wands at a time. And that's where the deck builder roguelike element that I mentioned comes into play. Obviously, this is a roguelike roundup, so this is, of course, a roguelike game. You die, you start over from the beginning. Uh, you know, that is uh, in the Berlin definition of roguelikes, and it is upheld here in this game. Um, but each wand is able to hold a variety of different um, effects and passives and sort of various things that will determine what type of projectile comes out of it. Yeah, so I think the wands for me were what kept me coming back to the game, learning about the magic system. I mean, like the tagline says, it simulates every pixel. And first, that's interesting. It gets you involved in the game, and it's a pretty thing to watch. Um, like you see the wood building catch on fire. You see the lake of oil uh, catch on fire. You see the icicles fall and crush the enemy. So that's interesting. Um, but I found going through the game... Sometimes those situations would crop up where I could take advantage of that and um, use that to defeat some enemies. But more often than not, it was um, it was an obstacle to get around or just something I was breezing through, especially getting to the later worlds. The wand building was where I came back to. Uh, I feel like this game has a very deep magic system and a very unique one as well. This kind of it has this kind of deck builder approach. Um, where your wand might start getting into combos, uh, where your explo- uh, your magic bolt that you have at the beginning of the game, later on it can be kind of upgraded so that it finishes off with an explosion, or it launches two new spells from over there. And learning about how, how the different wands and spells interacted with each other is not really something I've seen in games before, and that was a very addicting thing for me. I think I got about 58 hours in this game. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it certainly was addicting for you. Um, and you know, I, I I enjoyed it as well. I uh, I thought that this was very novel, and it did sort of play into that roguelike element in multiple ways. Uh, one, in that it allowed you to have to roll and adapt to whatever equipment you received over the course of a given playthrough. You know, you weren't always going to get the exact thing you want. You didn't always know when or where you were going to find a given wand or element that you could combine. And two, uh, it dictated the various properties that you were going to have to interact with your environment. Like if you were in an area with a large amount of 
oil and you had a fire-based weapon, you knew you had to be extra careful because that vat of fluid dynamically simulated oil was going to completely destroy you if you got too close to it with your fire weapon. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The levels are very procedurally generated over here. Uh, But I think one of the interesting things about this game in particular, kind of the way it delivers that proc gen flavor, is that there's procedurally generated levels, but there are static secrets. Um, secret passages, secret rooms, that if you know where to find them on one playthrough, then you can go back on the next playthrough and get power-ups, get extra health, all these extra things. Uh, The layout of the levels is always the same. For example, the mines are always above the uh, coal mines, which are above the snowy peaks. Uh, So the different things over there. But if you break out of the kind of the main dungeon loop where you're always going down, uh, you can explore other things like there's the desert to the right of the starting area. There's the snowy wastelands. If you get over the giant tree that starts off to the left of you and um, this kind of environmental positioning with each other reminded me in a way of Terraria, how you were able to interact with the different environments. That's something I enjoyed from that game, something I enjoyed with this one, too. Yeah, I do like the fact that there's biomes that you can recognize immediately when you first see them. It lets you know what kind of enemies you're going to see, and it lets you know sometimes what types of elements you can expect to find in there in terms of the the pixels uh, that you're going to need to interact with over the course of your time making through or making your way through that area. Uh, in addition to that, the the interaction aspect that we talked about here uh, for a little bit is really, to me, what makes this the most uh, roguelike element of this game. You know, the first time I got a Thunderstone, I was wet and I equipped it and immediately got electrocuted and died. Like, if that's not a classic roguelike interaction, I don't know what is. And, you know, like like you said uh, in our review or our podcast about Brogue back in the day, um, the fun is in learning after witnessing one of those heartbreaking deaths and saying, I will never make that mistake again. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I will say another thing I think this game does very well in the roguelike tradition or flavor or what have you. Um, I was reading Derek Yu's Splunky uh, post-mortem or autobiography, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Good book. Very interesting. But one of the things he mentioned, he liked Uh, about roguelikes that he wanted to incorporate in Splunky, and did so very successfully, I think, is that the environment acts the same on the player and on the enemies as well. So uh, you can catch the enemies on fire with the oil lamp, but also you can catch yourself on fire with the oil lamp. And it's a way of learning about the environment, but then being able to use that environment to your advantage later on. And this game shines where that is concerned. Uh, one thing I heard on uh, a podcast I recently listened to called The Spelunky Show-like, which is basically a, a roguelike-focused podcast, which Derky was actually inter- interviewed on, uh, Small World. But uh, the developer of Crypt of the Necrodancer, Ryan Clark, was also recently interviewed on that, and he put it in such a way about roguelikes that um, they have various layers that are always interacting with each other. Like in that game, it's uh, the type of floor you're on interacts with the type of weapon you're wielding interacts with the character. In this game, that is super 
uh, true as well. The type of wand you're wielding interacts with the type of environment you're in, interacts with the state of your character, whether they're covered in oil or blood or uh, water or whatever. And just adding like one more layer to the roguelike formula and having it interact seamlessly with all the others is kind of where the magic of this genre is formed. And it's uh, what I think makes this game so effective because you can barely notice the various layers that they're adding in on top of each other, but they interplay with each other so completely. I like that. I like that. I always considered roguelikes to be procedural generation and permadeath being their key characteristics, but after reading the Splunky book, after hearing that too, I, I quite agree with that. I think that is maybe call it the magic of roguelikes. So one thing with this game, too, that might not be obvious at first blush, since we're talking about the layers, is they call it the alchemy system in here, but it's almost like this crafting system, which I think is going to be fleshed out more as the game is developed more. It is still in um, early access, this game is. So the alchemy system means... It is basically this physics thing we're talking about, the chemistry or whatever words we're using, but the way the systems interact with each other, uh, are the, the way the different particles and fluids interact with each other. I haven't been able to do this myself yet, but I do know at the start of a game, there are three randomly chosen liquids, and if you mix all three of those together in a flask, you get a healing potion. I don't think there's any way to learn what those are right now except trial and error. I will say that I haven't beaten the full game yet, I've just gotten to the first ending where you turn yourself and the entire world into a big golden statue. So there could be things I haven't seen yet, but I think it's interesting and a way to kind of commoditize or make more explicit the fluid and powder interactions that happen in this game yeah uh secrets are a powerful ingredient to be added to any roguelike and it seems like noida is if it doesn't already setting itself up to have these in spades you know spelunky the sort of continual finding of new easter eggs and sub goals uh, after the initial goal and then uh, player set challenges is kind of what made that game's community continue to live on. And I see that Noida already has a daily challenge, and uh, it seems that they're being pretty diligent in adding secrets into the game as well. So um, I think we have a lot to look forward to with the continued development of Noida. Uh, you know, we only just first saw this game release in September of 2019, and as we're recording this in early 2020, it's... Uh, it's exciting to see where it's continuing to go and you know new things are added every week absolutely all right let's do some three-word reviews sure uh my three-word review is oops i'm dead <laughs> uh i uh said this more times or thought this in my head more times than i can possibly count for this game and i think uh it highlights the most entertaining aspect about this game unexpected death my three-word review for this game was learn the art the simulated pixels were a uh, great intro to the game a great way to grab attention but to me the wand and spell system was the reason i kept coming back to the game learning how to work the different spell combos and create the uber wand that got me to the end of the game that's where i had the most fun with it 
solid game, Noida. Looking forward to what we see from that in the future. All right, uh, now we're going to talk about Void Bastards, developed by Blue Manchu, who uh, started their career in the game creation industry with Card Hunter, uh, and also featuring writing by Kara Ellison, who I'm familiar with from her blogging about game dev. Uh, this is a really cool first-person shooter roguelite. Uh, definitely not a roguelite, because there's definitely a lot of persistent advantages that you retain, but uh, you know this game is inspired by the likes of Bioshock and System Shock 2, and has a significant amount of sort of stealth and immersive sim interactions uh, in a roguelike that takes place in a cool sort of space dystopia. I did enjoy the kind of comic book humor. It keeps the comic book visuals going strong throughout the game. It does a great job with that, but also the kind of hilarious dystopia. Um, in the game, you play as a rehydrated criminal who is sent out to rescue this corporation ship and bring it back from this um, nebula of floating derelict shipwrecks. That's right. It's another sci-fi corporate dystopian hellscape. They never get old. Uh, honestly, I, I can't get enough of this type of setting because it's so like funny, and the meta commentary on bureaucracy in this game, especially, is really quite sharp. Like, you need a form fifty-seven A to get form fifty-seven B, so you can get a requisition for X Y Z that you need to do. Blah 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 blah. Like, it's just bureaucratic hell in the very most poignant way possible, and. Uh, you know, it, it tells you a lot about our society, uh, the British slash Australian society, which this game was developed in, and uh, it's just very witty and sharp. Mm -hmm. Good sense of humor in this game, for sure. Yeah, another thing about this game that I liked, and, you know, maybe this is just me being a big baby, but it's quite generous. Like, for a roguelite, you retain quite a bit. Every time you sit down with this game, you're guaranteed to make progress. Uh, you know, whether it's gaining additional materials to craft your next upgrade, uh, retaining, you know, anything you're crafting during the course of your playthrough, you're retaining for the next rehydrated husk of a criminal that you're uh, going to be taking through this uh, derelict ship graveyard. It's just a, a game where, you know, incremental progress is always made. And to me, that is a fun thing because I don't like feeling like I'm treading water. I do think the upgrade system sort of hit a sweet spot comparing this to a less generous roguelike where you start off from zero each time and something like Rogue Legacy, which I feel was too much just buying the upgrades and once you got the upgrades, then you could actually go through and beat the game. The thing that differentiated this from Rogue Legacy in my mind was those those upgrades were a little too incremental almost all the upgrades in Void Bastards feel meaningful. Like, it's a new gun. It's basically an entirely new mechanic or way of approaching a level. Mm -hmm. That's pretty pretty metatextually interesting compared to just adding, like, 15 more HP or something like that. Oh, yeah. That's, um, I, you've played Diablo 2 before. Uh, I've played Diablo 2 before. It's a great game, but I never played it past, like, level 30, 34 or so, uh, because you only get new spells and skills up to level 30, and after that, it's just, here's you're 5% better at doing this skill now. That doesn't really get me excited. Yeah, that's fair. I always do feel like I'm, if I don't love a game, I usually continue to push forward until I've seen most of the new content <laughs> you know give me that content that's what i'm here for yeah but 
this this game gave you enough content in a consistent enough way that uh, made you want to push forward uh, pretty consistently. And the nice thing about this game is it also actually does have an end as well. You know, most roguelikes, like there are endings, but this game you progress over the course of, you know, maybe a dozen or, or so hours to an actual end point. Um, and I like having a game with an, an end cap where I'm not just sort of consistently casing or chasing my next uh, beatable run, you know, and I don't mean to skewer Noida there. Like, I know there's plenty of people, there's plenty of games that are extremely well-received that have that set up, you know, Spelunky being the, the hallmark achievement of that. An interesting thing about the, the setup of this game, and we mentioned it up top, is uh, this does take place in an FPS style uh, of presentation, right? You are in first-person mode, you have a gun in front of you, like basically it is a, a Doom clone, to quote someone from 1992. Um, the shooting feels a little weak at first, like it doesn't feel particularly impactful, but the variety of weapons really starts to build it out into something that feels a lot better, like once you get your shotgun equivalent weapon or your stealth poisoning dark gun and things like that. Yeah, there's... One of the things I really liked about this game from a design perspective is that they kind of force you to choose different weapons and different loadouts because you might be with your shotgun, your trusty shotgun, and that's the weapon you like, but now you're out of ammo, so you have to switch to something else. Or you're in a level where maybe the um, the poison darts you favor a lot, those don't work against all these robot enemies. So it makes you consider different loadouts try them out and that's the thing roguelikes or roguelikes roguelites make you do is they make you they force you to play different play styles and what might be your preferred way to do things yeah and this game has a really interesting way of giving you a uh, nested roguelike where with one character that you're taking through these levels you're able to choose a new loadout with each ship that you visit in the sector that you're navigating from ship to ship within. So you can look at the enemies that are uh, going to appear there, like Josh said, and choose the loadout that's going to be most effective against them, and uh, it'll feel completely different than the character that you took out to the last ship. It's pretty cool, and it lets you get a lot of variety in any given playthrough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another thing this game does that's interesting that is a lot more important than it initially seems like is stealth. Um, you know, if you're in an immersive sim, stealth is your number two mechanic next to shooting things. Uh, and really, this is sort of an, more of an immersive sim roguelike than a shooter roguelike to me. Uh, there's a lot of different ways for you to interact with your environment, and stealth is just as important as shooting, to be honest. Like, you don't want to be trying to kill every enemy that's on a given ship you want to avoid all the enemies if possible even more than stealth being an important part of the game uh one of the game's design goals reading some of the developer interviews was that you'd have to constantly weigh your options whether you should continue searching through rooms for the big treasure you're looking for the you know the form 81b that lets you requisition form 81c 
or if it's time to cut your losses and head on out of there, whether it's because, you know, you brought in your shotgun and it had the most bullets, but now you're out of bullets because you fought too many, too many enemies, or whether um, there's all of a sudden uh, a super tough alien is coming in or pirates are coming in to attack you, and you have, you know, all of a sudden the situation is much more dangerous than it used to be. Um, they said one of the design goals was to have you constantly weigh that do i press forward or do i pull back now uh they make that risk versus reward very explicit i feel yeah and resource management is a huge component of this game like every jump that you make costs fuel which you have to find on your ships or on the ships that you visit and it also costs one food which will heal you a little bit otherwise each jump will cost you hp as you slowly starve to death um, there's also a sort of salvage and recycling system where uh, salvage that you get on the ships will contribute to salvage you can use to craft parts. And then finally, the parts that you find on the ships, which allow you to craft persistent upgrades to your characters, which are sort of bigger, better versions of salvage. And so there's this nice loop going on where you're going to a ship, pushing to sort of not only reclaim what you lost by getting there or spent to getting there, but also looking to push ahead and get additional incremental gains uh, from the salvage you're finding within the ship. When I first played the game, I wasn't a huge fan of that incremental progression. Um, with the crafting, there's five different types of basic resources you can get uh, going through and recycling, salvaging, whatever you find on the ship. And I kind of thought it was too abstract. It's like, here, you got five foos, you got ten bars, you got twelve bazes. You know, it's uh, it didn't feel like it was specific enough. But I do see your point about that incremental progress and being able to not have a wasted death. Um, which, to me, I think that's the big difference between a roguelike and a roguelite. In my book. Yeah, I agreed. And I also agree with your um, your point on the fact that initially the five different resources you can salvage can seem a bit abstract, but as you start to understand the levels that you can go to and which ones contain high amounts of which salvage, then you can tailor that to the upgrade that you're going on. And I actually didn't realize until quite late into my playthrough of this game that you can track a, a second thing from just your main story item that you're looking for next you can also track your next upgrade salvage equivalent that you're trying to get to to get a certain weapon or upgrade and that actually steered me into some ships where uh you know i was able to quickly progress myself through the game's tech tree which was pretty cool oh nice very nice so uh it's worth mentioning that as we we're talking about all these different ships that you can visit throughout the course of your playthrough um each ship not only has a different function, for example, there's freighter ships, there's uh, fuel tanker ships, there's uh, luxury ships, dining ships, there's medical ships. They all have various things that you could get within them, and they also will have, in the later levels, an environmental quirk like Electrified or the powers out in this one, etc. Yeah, it's a different way to add some more variety to what otherwise might be, oh, here's another medical ship. This is what I'll expect over here. Um, it, I feel in this game, the environment does not affect the enemies half as much as it affects you. Uh, whether it's you have a longer oxygen supply or whether it's the power is out and 
you have to make a trek back to the power generator every once in a while to keep things going. So we were talking before about how the environment in a roguelike affects the enemies and the player equally. I feel, at least for the number of variations I have seen on the ships in this game, there are more things that make your run easier or harder, as opposed to being things that interact with the enemies as well. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of the uh, interactions here are one-sided, like your enemies are not as equally equipped or equally affected as you there are some environmental things that will affect enemies um, explosions for example that you can create from certain enemy types or certain environmental factors but uh, it's a lot less one-to-one than say noida was in this same discussion mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, i think the thing that kept me coming back to this game though even more so than the slow but steady progression is getting a little bit more of that writing and this game's comic book aesthetic is paired with some incredibly sort of witty and funny writing by the writer Kara Ellison who has done writing on Reigns, uh, Her Majesty, which is uh, the sequel to Reigns, which is the sort of Tinder equivalent uh, choose your own adventure uh, kingdom simulator game and honestly is an improvement in most ways on that uh, formula. Uh, Kara Ellison's a sort of a longtime video game journalist and also spent basically, I think it was over a year going around and sort of couch crashing with various indie developers in her book called Embedded with Games. And it was, it was a cool read. Um, recommend it. It's short uh, and it tells the stories of some games you probably know about um, in their early stages. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a neat thing. On top of that, you know, the comic book aesthetic that's present here, uh, paired with that writing, just sort of kept me wanting that next, you know, witty piece of banter or story piece. One thing to note about the aesthetic of this game is that it's a 3D shooter, standard FPS, but all the enemies are 2D sprites, and they're very detailed sprites, very well done. Um, but the animations for this is not like a very smooth animations the enemies will go from shooting at you and then the next frame they're being hurt when you shoot them it's not they're not trying to simulate the actual motion or animate that which lets them i think get a lot more bang for their buck on their budget and definitely gives a game a very particular style. Uh, the developers were saying like when they do this 2D sprite in a 3D environment, you're not really expecting like um, the alien to open the door by holding his hand out and pushing the button. Uh, they can kind of get away with a lot more because with the 2D sprites in that 3D environment, um, your expectations are a bit lower and they're able to save a lot of money or rather deliver more high-quality artwork within their environmental constraints. Absolutely. I think what you're looking for here is they're able to make every single frame that they give you a lot more expressive. Uh, you can get a lot more from one extremely well-animated frame that's meant to convey one thing than you can in you know that same thing spread out over 60 frames of a guy you know, opening a door or starting to attack you or something like that. One of the things I've noticed too, and this is from me 
having recently done a lot of sprite artwork and animation myself. I'm more of a beginner at that stuff, but one of the things I tell you a lot is to make good silhouettes with your, um, with your sprites. Make sure that you're clearly conveying the action, and I feel like they are just going for those silhouettes, and they do a great job with that. It's an example of how effective those are. Yeah, absolutely. I think they each of the enemies strikes a very particular silhouette and has a very particular personality even because uh, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the sound design in this game is extraordinary. Like each of the little barks and chitters of the various creatures that you come across is very distinct and uh, sort of communicates immediately what they are. And on top of that, the music, especially like the Oh No, an Enemy Spotted You music is super tense. They had a very good sound design in this game, for sure. One of the things, too, thinking about that sound is playing back that comic book aesthetic. One of the things I appreciated was before you go into a room, when there's a closed door, you have little pop-up onomatopoeia words that tell you what the enemy type is inside of there. Like the uh, one of the basic types, tourist types, uh, I forget exactly what it says, but it's probably something like fumble, fumble, or something like that. And you learn to recognize what enemies are in a room based on what the, these, both the sound effects and the, I guess, visualized sounds are that are coming out of that door. That's right. You have like Batman level onomatopoeic uh, bubbles and it's it works perfectly it, it fits right in with the aesthetic and it also is a visual way to convey what the sound design would otherwise be telling you if say you're playing on um and i don't know if this game is even out on the switch but if you're playing on a switch say or if you're not able to um use audio yeah if you're not able to hear at some different capacities then that's a very nice accessibility touch also now that i'm thinking about it that door thing is also very nice when you're getting back to what they said they were trying to do about, do I continue into this next room and try to salvage this piece, or do I cut my losses and run now? When you know what type of enemy you're about to face, it kind of gives you more information about that. There's less surprise. Not that you can't be ambushed in this game, because I've died enough times to different ambushes, but <laughs> it enters into the calculations. No, this this is definitely a game about slow creeping and planning, uh, more so than maybe Noida, uh, in my opinion, or at least maybe I, maybe I just wasn't good enough at Noida to plan that far in advance, but I always played Void Bastards like a cautious sneak rather than Void or uh, Noida, where I played a little bit more like a, uh, I don't know, like a playful witch, I guess. Like, let's see what happens if I do this. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it, it's interesting how you can craft the way you want your player to approach a game just by sort of incentivizing them to uh, play in a certain way. Are we ready to do some three-word reviews? I think so. All right. My um, my three-word review for this game was Spaceship Scavenger Hunt. You're out in space. You're looking for the one part in each of these derelict ships, the kind of big treasure chest, the big payout that gets you that next upgrade or gets you a little farther along in the storyline. Um, but because you're out on the spaceship, this derelict wreck, you're having to decide whether or not the part is worth the risk you'll take coming into this next one, this next room. 
and my three-word review is Sarcastic Space Swashbuckling. Uh, this game was all about that uh, sarcasm for me. The sarcastic uh, chimes and uh, overhead speaker uh, pips as you entered each new room or as the uh, maybe the space pirates found you and wanted to hunt your ass down and kill you uh, were something that I think really made this game excellent. You know, the, there was good sound, good voice acting, and all of it was just dripping in swashbuckling sarcasm. Uh, and that's what I enjoyed most about this one. Well, uh, I guess that concludes this roguelike roundup. Uh, you know, let us know what you think about this uh, new format. You know, we there's a ton of roguelikes out there. We play a lot of them. We probably will end up playing some more and doing roguelike roundups again at some point in the future. So let us know if you like this. Let us know if you think it's a, a cool idea to sort of get a you know quick fix of some compare contrast and roguelike goodness. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on gaming.